to be able to be back. And I think somebody is brilliant by putting the two together, prophecy and missions. They go together, and it's absolutely essential that we understand Bible prophecy since it's 30% of the entire Bible, one in every three pages. But then the only reason, and as you study through the prophetic scenario in God's Word, you come to an understanding the only reason that Jesus Christ has not already come for the rapture of the church at this point is because he's, he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to know him as Lord and Savior. So again, I'm talking about prophetic truth in the Word of God and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ to see people come to know him as Lord and Savior and those two coming together for the conference. So I must commend all of those who have uh, uh, put this together, put the plan together, came up with the theme, and I'm just so grateful that I've been asked to come and address the the conference with the prophetic truth of God's Word. Let me first say a, a word about the, the choir, the music. Brother Wallace, where is Brother Wallace? Is he still in here, or did he go home? <laughs> well, if he's, he's up top, oh, God bless you up there, man. Don't jump. You don't, you don't have to end it all. It was great. You know, if you'd only get a little bit of enthusiasm, it'd be a little bit better. But uh, I'm telling you, that guy, I love an enthusiastic song leader, and he just did an excellent job tonight, and the choir was great. Pastor, I thought you said they were going to stay up there. We got rid of that tradition, huh? And you just work here. Well, that's neat. But I'm glad they're down. I, I want to see their eyeballs on me and, and not behind me so I can know what's going on. I don't like people behind me when I'm preaching. I have no idea what they're doing, and I like to watch everybody when I'm preaching. Well, we're looking forward to the time together. It's a, a, a privileged opportunity for Judy and I once again to be in the Bahamas. Your hospitality has already been so well bestowed upon us. We're grateful for that, and it's great to see some old friends, uh, not long-time friends, old friends, Eddie and Eunice Pender, but old friends. But uh, we <laughs> look, I'm preaching. You sit there and be quiet. You're in the congregation. Uh, but uh, we are just thrilled to be able to come back. And many of you have already come up and uh, welcomed us and uh, given us uh, your hand of greeting and a little hug and all of that. So we're so grateful for that. Looking forward to more of that as we go through the week. And we're going to have uh, this night, tomorrow night, and Friday night, taking a break on Saturday, and then Sunday morning. And let me just give you a glimpse ahead as what we're going to be addressing as we come together to study God's Word. Now, it's great to hear the reports of the missionaries. I was thrilled. I love this learning center that's put up, and I, I would like to go down there and see uh, some of their work as well. And if that pastor would talk to me afterwards, I'd love to be able to see uh, your explanation of the stars and everything. I just love astronomy. So, but I, and I'm excited about what's going on Myanmar and from there over into where our dear brother is in Thailand. You know, that's a, edu a, a uh, 
evidence of the fact that we are quickly coming into an alignment with the scenario that is found in God's prophetic word. Not only that location in our world, but throughout the entire world, we see this happening. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be addressing probably the main conflict that has called all terroristic activities to come about in this world. Terrorism, that's what we've seen evidence of in the photos that we were shown tonight. Terrorism is based upon a conflict that's been going on for 4,000 years. There were twin boys born to Isaac and Rebecca. Those twin boys became two nations, or two peoples at least, and they've had a conflict for these 4,000 years. That conflict is center focus on all the terrorism that's happening in our world. Now, I make that statement not because the Bible makes the statement, but because the leaders of the terroristic organizations say that's the problem. And we need to have a resolution to the conflict. World leaders have been doing everything they possibly can. Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, Vladimir Putin, uh, the president of the European Union Council, the 28 member states, president of the United States, and all world leaders really wanting to have a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is the basic reason that there is terrorism according to the leaders of the terrorist organizations. Not necessarily the Bible, but it does talk about it. And we're going to look in the Bible to see how this all came about, when it's going to be concluded, will there be a resolution to it. And then on top of that, Islam has become the major player in our world today. Now, if you don't believe that, just go over here to the airport and try to get on an airplane without going through an x-ray machine or possibly taking your shoes off. You know, there's one thing that is good about growing old. I'm 75 years old, and I no longer have to take my shoes off when I go through security. I love that because if they wanted to smell my stinky feet, we can do it another way. Uh, but I don't like having to take my shoes off in security, but at 75, you don't do it anymore. But that is, again, tangible evidence of how Islam is the major player in our world. Where did it come from? How is it come to the strength it is today? What is its future? We want to look at that on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning in the Sunday school hour, Judy and I have just returned from a sojourn in Turkey. While there, I took my television crew. We taped a documentary on the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor entitled Let Them Hear. And we went to all seven church locations that were there at the time of John the Revelator. They have given us evidence of what happened at that time, had a historical background. We see that they have been also evident in the churches that have been in operation down to the 2,000 years of church history. And they're alive and well. Those churches of Asia Minor, no, they may not have the name that they were given back 2,000 years ago. They're alive and well. This church represents one of those churches. We'll do that in the Sunday school hour. And then in the morning service, we're going to be talking about the greatest sign for the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church, the next event in God's calendar of activities. I'm going to give you, according to the scripture, the greatest sign for that event to happen. But tonight, let's uh, open our study as we look at prophecy and missions together. Take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Acts, and we're going to begin in chapter 1. If you're going to talk about missions, 
the best book to read, if you would like to read about missions, would be the book of Acts. Acts is not a book of doctrine. Instead, it is a book of action. It is a book that lays out the number of missionaries that were involved. You have Peter, you have Paul, you have Silas, you have Barnabas, you have Timothy, uh, you have Philip, you have other men that are mentioned here in the book of Acts who were actually missionaries. There is a motivation for what God told them to do through their, his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to look at some of that very quickly with you and then tell you what the motivation was. Acts chapter 1, if you will. Let's start in verse 8. Now, Jesus Christ had already resurrected from the dead 40 days. He's about to ascend into the heavenlies when we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power. This is what the Lord's going to say to them before he does ascend into the heavenlies. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Pastor mentioned that earlier. Now notice, both in Jerusalem, and that's not talking about, well, this is the Bahamas, this is Nassau, this is my Jerusalem. That's not a proper exegesis of this passage of Scripture. He's literally talking about the city of Jerusalem. And so you're going to be a witness in Jerusalem and then in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what he told them those who had been following him, especially the 12 or 11 apostles at that point in time, because one of them had already denied him, the one that he had appointed as an apostle in Matthew chapter 10, Judas uh, had already walked away from him. Verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up with a cloud received out of their sight. Now notice the next verse, which is key to helping us understand, at least get a beginning understanding and why these men reached out across the world and were able to give the gospel message. As many people as they could get to would be a beneficiary of this gospel message. Verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men, not angels, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you unto heaven, shall come in like manner as ye have seen him go into the heavens. Did you notice that word? They were steadfastly looking towards heaven. A cloud gathers around Jesus Christ, starts to lift him up into the heavenlies, and they had their eyes focused on the heavenlies. Now that's what the word steadfast means, focused on the heavenlies. And then the two men in white apparel, I do believe those men will be seen later on in prophetic truth. Now they are the two witnesses, I believe, of the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 3 and following, who saw not only the ascension of Jesus Christ into the heavenlies, but they saw the resurrection. Those were the two men of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, who told the Marys that Jesus was not in the grave. He had risen from the dead. And what do you do if you're a witness? You witness the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you witness that he is coming. That's going to be the motivation for these men who were watching that. 
there was over 500 people that had gone to the Galilee during that 40-day period of time after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're the ones that came back to Jerusalem with him. They're the ones that are witnessing all of this happen as Jesus Christ is taken into the heavenlies and with their eyes steadfastly fixed on the heavens, they would go out to start doing what God told them to do in the person of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, we see that Peter is going to take responsibility to hold the services there in Jerusalem. Of course, it's the day of Pentecost. And what is really thrilling, verse 5 of chapter 2 talks about that there were Jews from every nation in the world. This is one of the pilgrim Jewish feast days when the Jewish people all had to come back to Jerusalem. You had three of those days, Passover, then you had uh, Pentecost, which is the day that we're looking at a record of in chapter 2 of Acts, and then you had the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, this was a pilgrim day, and verse 5, all telling us that Jews from around the world had gathered in Jerusalem to see what was going to take place. I'll not go through the message of Acts chapter 2. It's a very important message. You might want to read it later, but go to verse 41. Then, after he had preached that message, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, that's a pretty good evangelistic meeting. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This was in following the command of Jesus Christ to start in Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. He starts in Jerusalem, verse 42. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So now we start to see the progression of them starting in Jerusalem as Jesus told them to do. And they're going to now move out. And a bit later, they're going to move into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. When you go to Acts 3, you see that there's a persecution that takes place after Peter is going to preach another message in Acts chapter 3. They were going up to the temple to pray, Peter and John, and on the way they saw a lame man, and they said, such as I have, give I unto you. They said, silver and gold we do not have, but we will give what we can to you, and they raised him up, and he was able to walk. The big bills at the temple in Acts chapter 4. They heard what was going on. They didn't like that. They called him in. They said, we don't want you teaching and preaching in Jesus' name anymore. Interestingly, they told him by what happened at that man's healing, how did it take place? He said, by Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Did you hear what I just said? You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. That's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God and his salvation. Everyone that believes the Jew first and also the Greek. The big wheels of the temple told them not to preach anymore. And so in their conversation, they give the gospel out to them. Isn't that a thrilling thing to take opposition, turn it into opportunity through the omnipotence of God? I love verse 20. Look what it says in verse 20. When they tell him not to preach anymore, he says, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I call these guys spiritual can't help it. They could not but help to teach and preach what they have seen and heard. And if you're going to be truly a good missionary, it's going to be when you cannot but help 
to teach and preach and give the word out of what you have seen and heard, what's been accomplished in your life. Whether you go on the mission field, where you stay at home, whether you go next door to your neighbor, the mission field is the next door neighbor as well when you're thinking about what the Lord wants you to do. Go over to chapter 9. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and there's many other locations that I could look at, but in chapter 9, I want to show you Peter. He started in Jerusalem, and then where did Jesus say go? Go to Judea and Samaria. Now look at my hand here just a moment. If this was the state of Israel, let me give you this information. It'll help you in your Bible study. There are three locations that are talked about in the Bible, Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee. Judea would be from Jerusalem, about the center of my hand, south. That's in the land of Israel. Judea is from Jerusalem south. Samaria is from Jerusalem up to the Jezreel Valley, or Nazareth. And then the Galilee is from Nazareth north to the Syrian-Lebanese border. When you're studying God's word, if it talks about Judea, you can know that's from Jerusalem south. Or if it's talking about Samaria, from Jerusalem north up to the Jezreel Valley, or Nazareth. And then the Galilee it has lower, middle, and upper parts of Galilee, and you read the text, you'll see where they're talking about. Now that's from Nazareth all the way to the northern border of Israel. He goes in, look at verse 32. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all the quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. That is modern-day Lod, L-O-D. And that is the location where Ben-Gurion Airport has been placed. If you've ever traveled into Israel, you had to go through Ben-Gurion Airport. That is in Samaria. So now Peter's moving out to Samaria, following the command of Jesus Christ. Aeneas is the one that is healed of leprosy at that location. But I want you to know something. Notice what happened in verse 35. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, that's on the Mediterranean coast, saw him and they turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. How about that? When you're doing what God tells you to do, he's going to give unbelievable results. And the whole part of that region, the area of Samaria, turned to the Lord. We go from there into Jaffa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. He goes there. He raises Dorcas or Tabitha from the dead. That gets everybody excited. The word is starting to spread of what Peter is doing. It's opening in the door for him to give testimony of what is happening. He goes over to Simon the Tanner's house. He's going to be staying there. He, by the way, that's an interesting concept. He goes over to Simon the Tanner's house. That's not a kosher place. Uh, I mean, that's a bad place for an Orthodox Jew to be going, but that's where he went. You know why he was there? He had to have a dream. And the Lord had to reveal to him, not only do you go out to the Jewish people, that's what you've been doing, Peter, but I want you to go to the Gentile people as well. Now, I'm not going to explain all the dream. You have read it. You understand it. But what happens? In chapter 10, we see Cornelius, who was a leader. Uh, he was a centurion, a leader of 100 Roman troops up at Caesarea. He was a man who studied the word. A man had God consciousness. And he had studied so much, he wanted to find out what was the next step. So what happened was he sent three of his personnel down to Joppa to get a hold of Peter and bring him up. And when Peter got there, now he opens the world of salvation to the Gentiles. 
For the first 20 years of the church, only Jews had come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. That's book of Acts chapter 2 through chapter 10. This is 20 years into the early church period of time, and now the Gentiles are given an opportunity to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior as well. They have a big church council in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, and at that point in time they decide, James the pastor of the church, by the way, Peter was not the pastor of the church. James was the pastor of the church, and they decided that's what God's word taught. The prophets said that's what would be happening. Take your Bible now and go over to 1 Peter chapter 5. I told you that Peter started in Jerusalem. Then he went to Judea and Samaria, preaching the gospel, seeing results, understanding people were coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter, we see that Peter goes to a place called Babylon. Now, may I tell you, in chapter 5 and verse 13, Babylon is not a cryptic name for Rome because dear Peter never went to Rome. I was in the Vatican the other day. I was in St. Peter's Cathedral. I was there, and I was standing in front of that uh, location where Peter's supposed to be buried. And I took my camera guy and I brought him over to me and I said, hey, I just want you to uh, notice what I'm going to say here. And I quickly opened up. What are you all looking at? (laughs) Guy looks like he has a Jewish kippah on. (laughs) It's a flesh kippah. I can see that. Anyway... Uh, I, 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 was, uh, I was standing here in front of that cupola, which is the location where Peter's supposed to be buried. I brought my camera guy up, and I said, write it to the camera. I don't know who is buried in this grave, but it's not Peter, because Peter never came to Rome. So whoever's told you Peter's here, they're lying. It's not Peter. By the way, Peter never did go to Rome. The text here in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse 13, says he went to Babylon. At that time in history, Babylon was the second most populated Jewish city in the world, second only to Jerusalem. What did the Lord tell him to do? Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, and go to the uttermost parts of the earth. What does he say? Hey, the church in Babylon salutes you. Who started the church in Rome? It wasn't Peter, it was the apostle Paul. Who wrote the letter to the Romans? That was the apostle Paul. Did you ever notice the letters that these men wrote to different peoples and churches and locations? They always would greet somebody. That's what Peter's doing here in 1 Peter chapter 5. All the saints in Babylon salute you. Well, have you ever read any place in the book of Romans where Paul said, Hey, Peter, how you doing? How's the church going? Don't you think if Peter had started the church, the apostle Paul would have said, hey, Peter, you're doing pretty good over there. How's the church building going? Peter never, so don't think this is a, did you ever know Peter to be cryptic about anything he ever said? Not one time. He didn't mince words. In your face, Jesus. You think I don't mean what I say? Remember at Caesarea Philippi when the Lord said, I'm not going to set up the kingdom. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified, buried, and I'm going to resurrect from the dead. What did Peter say? Not so, Lord. That's in your face. You know you can't say not so, Lord? Because if you do, he's not Lord. And if he's your Lord, you don't say not so. Peter never used cryptic language. He started a church in Babylon. He was going to the uttermost parts of the world. Why? 
On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God filled him to go out. Uh, 10 days earlier, he had seen Jesus ascend into the heavenlies. He was steadfastly fixed on Christ coming back. And they went out and turned the world upside down. Oh, that's what I read in my quiet time this morning. I was reading the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Sometimes look at it, you know, verse 6, you know what it says? The town people, the town fathers are very upset. They said, hey, those men who have turned the world upside down have come into town. We got to shut them down. That's missionary work, turning the world up. Well, no, no, no. Look, I have to take, uh, I don't like the translation in the King James Bible of, Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. They weren't out there turning the world upside down. It was already upside down. They were turning it right side up. And that's what they were doing out there. And they were doing it because of missions. They were going to the field to do what God had told them to do. Do you understand that the last thoughts of Jesus Christ that he gave to those men he had been building into their lives for three and a half years, for three years until the point he started teaching prophecy, 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, he started teaching prophecy. You see, he came to offer the kingdom. That's the whole book of Matthew to offer the kingdom, not to Christians. There were no Christians in the book of Matthew. He came to offer the Christian, excuse me, the kingdom to only people he's going to offer the kingdom to, the Jewish people. Not one place in the word of God is the kingdom offered to Christians. It's offered to Jewish people. And that's the book of Matthew. That's what he's talking about. But because the Jews failed to believe not only his cousin, John the Baptist, who could have been the fulfillment of Elijah coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Micah chapter 4 and verse 5, he, they failed to believe Jesus Christ. And they determined that what they were going to do is they were going to uh, go against what God had told them to do for the purpose of accomplishing what they wanted to have happen, not what God wanted to have happen. And so they rejected Jesus Christ in the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew. He said, and basically he explained his death, burial, and resurrection. And so from the 12th chapter of Matthew on through the rest of the book of Matthew, through the 28th chapter, he's no longer offering the kingdom, but he's telling them of a new program, his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is exactly, see what happened was he took that program of the kingdom and he postponed it because of unbelief among the Jewish people. That doesn't mean he's not going to keep his promise of bringing the Jewish people the kingdom. Go to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, it's the culmination of Jesus Christ teaching Bible prophecy before, before his death, burial, and resurrection. If you go back and look at chapter 1 again, when you get home and look at Acts chapter 1 in the beginning portions of it, between verses 1 and 10, you'll see that after 40 days in the Galilee, he comes down into Jerusalem. What had he been teaching in the Galilee? Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Who was he teaching it to? He was teaching it to Jewish people. There weren't any Christians in Acts chapter 1. Christians come into existence in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He's teaching the Jews about the kingdom to come. In fact, what did they say to him? Jesus, are you ready to set up your kingdom now? You know what his answer was? No, I'm not. And then they said, well, when are you going to do that, Lord? He said, I don't know. Only my father knows that. 
Do you understand that? We talk a lot about the kingdom and we don't understand the kingdom. And we get it wrong. And a wrong doctrine can be disastrous, can be devastating. We have to have the true doctrine of the word of God. Now, when we get over to Matthew chapter 24, this is Monday afternoon of Passion Week. That's the week Jesus Christ is going to be crucified. He goes from the Temple Mount over to the Mount of Olives, and there he's going to speak. They call it the Olivet Discourse. Notice what he says. He gives a litany of information, of evidence, what it's going to be like before he comes back. Now, we've got to differentiate between the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. And I'm going to show. Look at verse 29 of Matthew chapter 24. Verse 29. Here's what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. He's laid out in the first 28 verses of the book of Matthew chapter 24 what is going to be taking place when he comes back, when he actually comes back to the earth, steps down on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. That is the second coming. Remember, he had postponed the setting up of the kingdom to the Jewish people, but now he's going to recommit and make a promise that that second coming will happen. Look at verse 29, immediately after the tribulation. And here, Jesus now is introducing a period of time called the tribulation. Preceding verse 29 will be all the things that are going to happen in the tribulation. What is so interesting to me, if you will read that portion of scripture, those 28 verses, you will recognize what you think is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. John the Revelator was in that meeting. He was there on the Mount of Olives. He heard that Olivet Discourse. He heard everything Jesus Christ had given. And he said, these things will precede my second coming immediately after the tribulation I'm going to come. Now notice what he says here in verse 30. This is the motivation that sent these men across the world to the uttermost parts of the world preaching the gospel. This is missions. Look at verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, do you understand those are the words of Jesus Christ? Do you understand what he just said? Immediately after the tribulation, I'm coming back in the clouds with great power and great glory. And he said, this is a sign. You know what's interesting? God the Father alluded to this same sign. Have you ever read the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? It says the Ancient of Days. That's the name for God the Father in the book of Daniel. The Ancient of Days will give his son, the Son of Man, that's the name for Jesus Christ, will give the Son of Man his dominion, his kingdom, and it'll be a kingdom that will be forever. Now, wait a minute. You know what then he said? I'll do that when I see him coming in the clouds. That's when he will be king of kings. You read the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 16. You'll see that Jesus Christ has on his vesture when he comes back, on his thigh, that title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're using a title for Jesus Christ, which is not his official title today. You know what the title of Jesus is? Intercessor. First John, chapter 2. At the right hand of the Father, 
I think I heard somebody sing a few moments ago, we're going to see Jesus on his throne in heaven. Jesus doesn't have a throne in heaven. He never has a throne in heaven. If you want to see a glimpse into the heavenlies, read Revelation 4 and 5. It looks into the heaven. In verse 2 of chapter 4, verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, God the Father's on the throne, not Jesus. Hebrews chapters 1, 8, 12, and 10 says, at that point in time where Jesus is today, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. When the old devil comes daily, 24-7, to accuse the brethren, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. And so that's where Jesus is. He's not king of kings now. No, 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 wait a minute. He doesn't become king until God the Father gives him that responsibility. And you know when he does it? When he sees him coming in the clouds in great power and great glory. What am I bearing down on this for? Because we got to stay true to what God's word says. Not what some song says, not what some Preacher man may have said, what does God's word say? Not even what Jimmy D. Young says, what does God's word say? May I ask a question to prove my point? Raise your hand if you've seen Jesus Christ coming in the clouds. Just raise your hand. Oh, nobody. Well, that means he hasn't come back yet. That means he's not king of kings and lord of lords. He hadn't received the title. God the Father had. What did he say? I don't know when I'm going to set up my kingdom. Only my father knows that. You see, that's the text. That's what motivated these men. He made the promise. He had postponed the kingdom. He had made the promise. You want to know why I'm so avid about this? Because 75 years ago, there was a guy in Europe who tried to set up a thousand-year kingdom. He didn't call it a kingdom. He called it a Reich. And his name was Adolf Hitler. And he killed six million people who were guilty of one thing. They were Jewish. And they tried to set up a kingdom and wipe the Jews out. That's what wrong doctrine does. Leads to a disastrous, devastating situation. So that's the first promise. Now keep your finger here. We're coming back to Matthew 24. And go over with me to John Chapter 14. Let me tell you what John 14 is. I'll set the scene for you. It's the upper room. It's the night before he's going to be crucified. It's the beginning of Passover. You remember how a Jewish day unfolds? It starts at sundown and goes to the next sundown. You know where they get that from? The book of Genesis chapter 1. The night and the day were the first day. The night and the day the second day. So our day starts at midnight. Their day starts at sundown. Today is Wednesday. At sundown Wednesday in Jerusalem, it became Thursday, you see? And so that night, before he's crucified at 3 o'clock the next afternoon, that night they're having a Passover Seder. Do you remember what I told you was going on for the last six months before Christ got into Jerusalem to be crucified? He told them in Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'll be crucified, I'll be buried, but don't worry, I'll resurrect from the dead. Do you know he repeated that a number of times from Caesarea? That's the northeastern corner, highest point in the state of Israel you can go. He comes down the Jordan Valley after going back through the Galilee, comes into Jericho, makes his way up to Jerusalem. All along, he's teaching, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. That was the night before. And Jesus stands up in front of that crowd. They're having anxiety attacks. Do you understand it? They've been following Jesus for three and a half years now. And he's going to be killed? What are we going to do? Jesus saw this. You know what he did? 
Amen. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, now listen, men, I shall come again and receive you unto myself. You want to know something? That's not the second coming. That's an event called the rapture, which Jesus introduces the very first time it's been introduced in the whole word of God. Now, these men with their anxiety attacks, it went right straight over the head. They had no idea what he was talking about. Look at that verse 3. Notice what he said. Let me show you. It's not the second coming. Verse 3, chapter 14, book of John. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you, receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, Revelation 19, 11 and following, we mount white horses. We come back to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, 4, with Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. This is being received up into the heavens to be with Jesus Christ, where he had gone on that day in Acts chapter 1, recording that indeed he was going into the heavenlies. You see this microphone stand? I'm going to let this represent that event. It's called the rapture of the church. It's the next event in God's calendar of activities. Not one thing has to happen before it. All prophecies been fulfilled for that to happen. And may I tell you something? The rapture has not happened yet. I can prove that. Pastor and I are still here. Should pastor and I disappear because the rapture takes place, you have a real problem. If the rapture does take place during the service and we disappear, just see the deacons. They'll take care of you, all right? <laughs> I'm teasing, guys. I'm teasing. Can't you take a joke? Anyway, this is the rapture of the church. And then Jesus introduced a period of time. He called it the tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation, he laid out what was going to happen. And then he talked about coming back. Where every eye will see him, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. In the clouds, in great power and great glory, he's coming back. So there's the promise of the rapture, and then there's a promise of the return. And in between, Jesus called it the tribulation period. Uh, we're going back to Matthew 24, but stop by chapter 12 of John. Let me show you something very interesting. John chapter 12. Look at verse 1. John 12, 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came into Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom Jesus raised from the dead, and they had made a supper for him. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. You know what meal that was? Well, let's see. They got into town on the day that the Shabbat meal is going to be served after the Sabbath begins at sundown. So they got into town on Friday. You see, he was not going to travel. He believed in the Orthodox Judaism. He was not going to travel more in a Sabbath day's journey. You know where he had been after he resurrected Lazarus? He went over to Jordan. He crossed the Jordan River. He's in Jericho. It's 21 miles coming up from 1,300 feet below sea level to 2,700 feet above sea level. He makes that journey. Boy, they are tired and hungry. They get into Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives. His favorite family in Jerusalem, where he always stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, she had prepared a meal. They were ready to serve the Shabbat meal. This is a special meal among Jewish people. 
So that was Friday. And it was six days before Passover. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Passover is Wednesday. All right? Now notice something else. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. And on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was come to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet with him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Boy, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like the triumphal entry. Well, wait a minute. He got into town on Friday. And the next day, the triumphal entry took place. Oh. Oh, you mean, Dr. DeYoung, there's no such thing as Palm Sunday? That's exactly what I mean. We get that from tradition. In Judaism, that's their favorite word. Tradition. Have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition. I despise tradition. I love the word of God. And it says on Saturday, the triumphal entry took place, not Sunday. Forget tradition. Study the word of God. I'll tell you why this is important. Go to Mark chapter 11. We're going back to Matthew 24. We'll get there before the hour's up. Uh, we'll get there long before the hour's up. Mark chapter 11. Let me show you something. This is the record in Mark 11 of the three times that Jesus Christ went up to the Temple Mount while he was staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Let's look at the first one. Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around about all things, and now that the eventide was come, he went out and went back to Bethany with the twelve. I'm submitting to you that's Saturday he goes into the temple. He looks around, everything's all right. He goes back to spend the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Look down here in verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem again, and Jesus went into the temple, and he began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the, money, the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now, wait a minute. If that would have been the first day he came down, which was Saturday, don't you think he would have thrown those money changers out when he looked around the temple and everything was all right? Hello? Well, of course he would have thrown them out. In John chapter 2, he threw them out when he went in the temple complex. That was the first time he threw the money changers out. He does it here at the end of his three and a half years of ministry. He comes and he throws them out. Do you know why they weren't there the first day he went down? Because that was the Sabbath. The money changers don't work on Sabbath. You know what the first day of the work week for the Jewish people is? Sunday. And so he comes down on Sunday. The first day he came down as the potentate, the king of kings for the Jewish people and the Lord of lords. The second day he comes down as the priest, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now look what it says here. He comes down another day, verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there come unto him the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And they said to him, by what authority thou doest these things? You know what he is? His other office. You see, he's the potentate, king of kings. He's the priest, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's the prophet, the prophet, the teacher. Now I go back to Matthew 24 and let me conclude. 
Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse one. He's been on the Temple Mount. Do you know what it was like? I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem. You can imagine what it was like. Let me just give it a picture in your mind of what it was like. There on the Temple Mount, there stood a 15-story high temple. It was referred to as Herod's Temple, and I'll tell you why that was the case tomorrow night when we study Esau and the Palestinians, why it was called Herod's Temple. It wasn't the temple that Herod built. No, Zerubbabel built the temple. We'll get to that tomorrow night. But it was 15 stories high. It was covered with pure 24-karat gold. Why 24-karat? That's flexible gold. Those were limestone stones that were laying on top of each other. They didn't concrete them together. They laid them on top of each other. They covered with 24-karat gold. On the Jerusalem skyline, it was majestic. The rabbi said, if you'd never seen Herod's temple, you'd never seen a beautiful building. General Titus, when he commanded the Roman army to destroy it, he said, I've been all over the world. I've seen every beautiful building in the world. There's nothing more beautiful than Herod's temple. And then he destroyed it. It was majestic. And Jesus steps out of the temple teaching. He's there as the prophet. And Peter and John are saying, hey, Jesus, look, look at this building. Isn't that fantastic? Notice what he says. Chapter 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out, and he departed from the temple, and his disciples came unto him to show him the things of the temple, the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all of these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now that's a prophecy. It's in 30 A.D., and in 70 A.D., 40 years almost to the day, that prophecy was fulfilled. That prophecy was fulfilled. You say, wait a minute. Why would you chase that rabbit about the days that Jesus went into Jerusalem? Saturday instead of Sunday. Sunday for his throwing the money changers out. Monday for teaching. Folks, if Mark chapter 11 is not absolutely correct, I'm going to tear this Bible up. I'm going to denounce Jesus Christ. I'm going to walk out of the building and have a vacation. All of God's word has to be absolute. Deuteronomy 18 says, here is a test for a prophet. If he's speaking for me, whatever he says will come true in absolute detail. And if God's word is not correct, how can I know what's correct about Bible prophecy? How can you know that we have to go to the mission field? How do we know how to live if it's not correct from Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21? It's without contradiction. It's without error. And so I gave you that period of time. I talked about the promise he was going to come. I also looked at the period of time to help you recognize God's word has to be authentic if we're going to believe it. And now I'm talking about the prophecies. He says, I'm going to tell you this. Not going to be a stone upon us. Did that happen? If I could bring every world-renowned archaeologist from Israel into this building, stand them up here, let them give you testimony, they would have to tell you that there's not one stone upon a stone from Herod's temple on the Temple Mount today. Not one. You know how they were torn apart? General Titus, he wanted to 
motivate his guys to destroy the temple. So what did he say? You see all that gold on those limestones down there? They're not connected. Just rip those stones off and you can take all the gold off of those stones. That's your bounty. I've got another bounty. Do you know why that temple was torn down? Do you know who General Titus's father was? Vespasian. Do you know who he was? He was the one the Roman emperor assigned the responsibility of rebuilding the Roman Empire when Nero in 64 AD let it burn down. In 70 AD, they appointed Vespasian. He was in the Middle East. He went over to Caesarea to get on a ship to sail the Mediterranean to Rome. He told his son, Titus. He said, Titus, go back to Jerusalem. Destroy the city of Jerusalem. Disperse the Jews to the four corners of the earth. By the way, that will fulfill Deuteronomy 28. And devastate that temple. And bring me the treasure in the temple. Ever been to Rome? Ever walked through the Arch of Titus? Engraved on the Arch of Titus. There are the Roman soldiers. What are they carrying? Oh, they're carrying the menorah. They're carrying the table of showbread. They're carrying the two silver trumpets. Do you know what was in that building called the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple? A treasure. The temple treasure. You know how much it weighed? I don't know what it was worth. Let me tell you how much it weighed and what it was. It was 50 tons, not ounces, not pounds, tons of gold and silver. And they rebuilt the Roman Empire. That their treasures out of the temple. That's why Jesus said the temple's going to be destroyed. That's why the Romans destroyed it. That's a prophecy that was absolutely detailed and absolutely fulfilled, like the triumphal entry. Let me show you two more and we're out of here. Look at verse 4. He's asked for some information by the Jewish people he's been training. How can we know when you're coming back? Look what he said. Verse 4, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Verse 5, for many shall come in my name, saying that I am Christ and shall deceive many. Verse 11, and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Verse 24, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. I read four verses Four times I said deceive. Deception is the number one indicator he's coming back. Look up here again. This is the promise of the rapture. This happens before the tribulation period of seven years, which Jesus talked about. And he details in chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. This is the second coming. This is when he comes back. This is when his return is. He comes in the clouds in great power and great glory. Then he gets his kingdom. He doesn't have a kingdom today. He'll never have a kingdom into heaven. His kingdom is always on earth. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, how? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of Jesus Christ never in heaven. God the Father has that one. Jesus gets his after his return when God the Father gives it to him. What's the greatest indicator that that's about to happen? It happens after the rapture of the church, but Jesus said, deception. You know what it said in verse 5? There'll be those coming in my name saying that I am Christ. Have you heard some of the missionaries from Islamic countries? 
They're saying that millions of Muslims are coming to Jesus Christ today. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's a famous prophecy teacher named Joel Rosenberg. He's saying the exact same thing. That's another lie. Look, I've lived in the Islamic world for over 26 years. I know what's going on out there. There are pockets of evangelism in Islam, but not by the millions. Do you understand to a Muslim what happens if they convert to Jesus Christ? They're beheaded. Have you heard of millions of Muslims being, no, there's some being beheaded. I'll give you that, but not millions. You notice what it says? It says there'll be those who say they are Christ and they're not. You know what they're saying in the Islamic world is happening? Missionaries reporting that Jesus Christ is appearing to them. May I tell you something? That's a lie. Not because DeYoung says it, but because Jesus said it. Look at verse 23 here. Matthew 24 and verse 23. Then if any man shall come unto you saying, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Look at verse 26. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Jesus Christ is not appearing to anybody today. He doesn't appear till he steps back on the Mount of Olives at the end of a tribulation period. That's when he comes. Nobody's seen him today. Not according to DeYoung, I could be fallible. Jesus is not fallible. He said, don't believe him. Don't believe him. And then he said, you want to know how to recognize the time I'm coming back? There will be a proliferation of signs, wonders, and miracles. Boy, if you don't believe that's happening today, turn on so-called Christian television. Signs, wonders, and miracles. People being healed. Do you know Satan has the capability of healing? Satan is going to heal the person who's the Antichrist. Has a wound to the death, as it were. He's going to heal him. Satan has healing power. Not resurrection power. Healing power. We better watch out how we talk about what's going on. We better be absolutely in tune with what God's word says. Jesus said, the way they're going to communicate these, this deception is signs. Does, do I believe that Jesus can perform a miracle? You may think, hey, DeYoung doesn't believe Jesus can perform a miracle today. Folks, I believe Jesus can do whatever he wants to. I don't tell Jesus what he can do, what he can't do. You know what I do? I just report what he says. I report, you decide. Do you like that phrase? If you've ever watched, watched Fox News, you'd like it. I report, you decide. That's what Jesus said. Now that's the first, the first of a number of events that are going to happen. The rest of this week, I'm going to get into the other events, but I want to close with one thing. Pastor, I don't know where you took homiletics. Homiletics is the study of how to prepare a message and deliver the message. Basically, that's what it is. I got my homiletics course from Jesus Christ. You know why I'm saying that? If you read the Olivet Discourse, actually in verse 34 of chapter 24, the sermon's over. The sermon's over. But then you know what happens in verse 37? Jesus says, oh, I forgot to tell you something. You ever done that, Pastor? You get finished, everybody's closing their Bibles, putting their jackets on, getting ready to go. And you say, oh, I forgot something. Everybody just hold on just a minute. Now, that's what Jesus did. 
He said, oh, I forgot something. Look at verse 37. At the end, this is the end of the Olivet Discourse. I'm not getting the things tonight in the middle. I'll get that the next night. Look here in verse 37. But as it was in the days of Noah, there shall also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Look at the next couple of verses. For as in the days that were before the flood, now those are days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. That would be the days during the flood. Do you know Noah was 600 years before the flood came? And then when he went into the ark, they were in the ark being protected from all the waters that inundated the world, the entire world. Do you know that that was just a little bit more than a year? And then when he landed on the mountains of the slopes of Ararat in eastern Turkey, you know how long Noah lived after that? Chapter 9 of the book of Genesis says he lived 350 years for a total of 950 years. May I tell you where Noah lived? I know where Noah lived. He lived in Babel. How do I know? Oh, his great-grandson, Nimrod. You see, God told Noah and his three boys, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, in the first verse of chapter 9 of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. In chapter 10, it's the record of the beginning of them being obedient. But in chapter 10, we see that old Cush, he had a son. That was the son of Ham, son of Noah, great-grandson of Noah, Nimrod. The beginning of his kingdom was in the land of Shinar. That's modern-day Iraq. Babel, that's on the shores of the Euphrates River, which is 58 miles out of downtown Baghdad. That's where Noah lived, because everybody lived there. Nimrod said, I spilled us a great city, one city. God had said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Nimrod says, in your face, God, we're going to be here. Do you understand what that means? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What was happening in the days of Noah? The focus of the world was on Babel. Or should I say what it was called later, Babylon. Or should I tell you what it's called today, Iraq. Have our eyes been focused there? 1991, January, Judy and I moved from the United States to Jerusalem to start our missionary work. Three days later, Saddam Hussein sent 39 scuds from Iraq to Israel. I was there for 39 scud attacks. I know what Saddam was doing. I was on the receiving end. And at that point in time in 91, the world started to focus on Iraq. Do you know what Saddam did? He spent a half a billion, that's a B, half a billion dollars refurbishing Babylon. Put his own palace out there. Had a poster, his face superimposed on the face of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'll be like Nebuchadnezzar. The only man in history that ever destroyed the city of Jerusalem. I'll be like him. And then he died. There was one of his generals. He didn't die. He wasn't arrested. In fact, he fled Iraq and went over to Syria. He joined Al-Qaeda. 
Al-Qaeda wasn't mean enough for him. So he started his own organization called ISIS. You know what his name was? General Al-Baghdadi. And now where's the focus of the world? On Babylon, on Iraq. I-S-I-S, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. The Caliphate, that's the Arabic word for kingdom, has been set up by al-Baghdadi. He's the Caliph, the religious leader. He's going to convert the world to Islam and then the Mahdi, the Muslim Messiah comes and he'll headquarter in Babylon on the shores of the Euphrates River. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, focus of the world on Babylon, modern day Iraq. Do you understand what I'm telling you? There's a group of men, Peter, Paul, Mark, Silas, Barnabas, Stephen, and many others, Philip included, went across the world with the gospel message because they were motivated by prophecy. If we'll study one third of the entire Bible, prophetic truth will be motivated the same way and reach out to the world with the message of the gospel before it's eternally too late. Father, thank you for your word. I believe we see in the book of Acts that what motivated those men to go out and turn the world right side up was their belief that Jesus Christ was coming back. Many of them witnessed Jesus Christ leaving. They heard the two men there say, why stand you here gazing into heaven? As he's gone, so he's going to come again one day. And from there, Peter took off, preached in Jerusalem, went to Judea and Samaria, led the first Gentile, Cornelius, to the Lord, then went to the uttermost parts of the earth of Babylon and started a church. They were following the directive of Jesus in world missions because they understood he was coming and it could happen. They were steadfastly looking towards heaven because they believed it would happen very soon. Let that be our motivator. And as our dear pastor comes to conclude this time, drawing to a close, a word of encouragement to those of us who need to be like these beginning missionaries and have the same motivation so we can fulfill the perfect will of Jesus. It's not my will that any should perish. Thank you, Lord.